The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Robots Radio. Games. Lore. Stories. Community. Just press play. Welcome to the Fallout Lorecast, the podcast that explores the boundaries of our knowledge about the world of Fallout. Can you imagine what it was like the day the bombs dropped? And I'm sure you've probably tried to imagine this a few times, at least listening through the content of my podcast alone. But from the perspective of the people in Fenway Park on the day the bombs dropped, Can you imagine what that was like? I'll paint the picture for you. It's 2077. The World Series is happening that day. The Swatting Sultans, the team from Boston, which is a different team than we have in the real world, probably because of copyright reasons. But in this alternate reality, the Swatting Sultans have been a baseball team For over a hundred years, they had previously won titles in 1903, 1912, 1915, 1916, and 1918, but no years after that. It had been 159 years since the Swatting Sultans were the best baseball team in the world. And here they were up against their rivals a team from Texas. And I'm not even sure we know the name of that team. We just know that they were up against a team from Texas. And the bombs drop. Now, the details are fuzzy. We only get little glimpses here and there of these pre-war accounts of what was going on. What we do know is that they had a star pitcher, Matt Murtaugh. And Matt and two of his teammates, Nathan Broadhurst and Jim Walker were warming up. They were out on the field warming up when inevitably the bombs dropped. The people realized that they were under attack and that they needed to take shelter. Fortunately for them, the stadium was built, well, I guess you could say like a tank, maybe like something even more Uh, difficult to break than a tank because it survived the initial onslaught of the bombs and the warfare that ensued, mostly because of the walls and the way the structure was built. And you can see it in the remains of Boston. There are other buildings that are a little bit more broken down, some that look like they might have taken direct hits by something or had just worn out over time. Fenway Park stood And I'm imagining that Matt and Nathan and Jim and many of their teammates and probably a significant portion of the crowd, the other team, the people that were there that day were sheltered by the walls of the stadium. 
Now, what that actually looked like, you'd have to use your imagination because we don't have pictures. We don't have a video. We don't even have a very descriptive explanation for what they went through beyond the transcript of Nathan's autobiography. So what do we know? Well, according to Nathan Broadhurst, this is what we know. His transcript starts by saying, my name is Nathan Broadhurst, and here is my story of how I went from a famous baseball player to a lonely but content old man. He survived for a time after the bombs dropped. I can still remember, clear as day it all started. It was the morning before the biggest baseball game of the year. It was us, the Swatting Sultans versus Texas. No other name, just Texas. I showed up early with Jim Walker and Matt Murtaugh. Matt had been worried sick because he was first up to pitch, so Jim and I were helping him warm up. Little did we realize the biggest day of our life was larger than we expected. I was up at bat when we felt everything shake. Thank God for those massive green walls, otherwise we would have been toast. We assumed it was an earthquake at first, until that terrible sound and the burst of dust overhead. I remember watching half of the chairs in the outfield being blasted to hell. Once the worst of it appeared to be over, Matt was in a rush to head back to Atlanta to make sure his family was okay. Never found out if he made it back or not. I went with Jim and headed west so we could meet up with my fiancée, Janice, who was also Jim's sister. They had grown up in Charleston, West Virginia, together before Jim moved up here. We were originally going to take a more coastal route, but we heard that New York was even worse off than Boston. We ended up taking Highway 90 onto 84 until we joined a group in Hartford who was headed to Pittsburgh. Shortly after we parted ways in Altoona, Jim and I ran into some trouble. It was this little town called Bedford, which had already walled themselves in. Some bald putts came storming out with this group of assholes on bikes. They pinned us down, tied us up, and locked us in an old bank. Luckily, it didn't take us long to cut ourselves free, find our bats, and get onto the roof. But when we jumped onto the next building, someone shot Jim midair. He was dead even before he hit the street below. He'd been my best friend for years. I had just watched someone shoot him like he was nothing. I had no choice but to run before they got me too. It nearly took me another week to make it to Charleston. When I got there, no one had seen or heard of Janice for weeks. I searched for months but never did find her. For all I know, we passed her on the way here. After a few years, I decided to settle down with a group of welcoming and bright-eyed settlers. We built our home here on the cliffs, and it is here I am content to die. I leave behind my story and my once-famous bat in the hopes that it'll inspire or help anyone who needs it. So although Nathan's explanation of what happens is very touching, 
uh, or crushing in <laughs> different ways. It only fills in the blanks a little bit about what happens that day at the stadium. And this is a normal dilemma for the content of Fallout, for the fans and the people who play the games. So much of this uh, pre-war information is very limited. I get questions all the time where people are like, hey, do do more pre-war stuff. Share more information about these other things. And it's actually very, very limited. So we have to use our imaginations and speculate. That's why speculation is so popular with this series, because the details that we do get often leave us wanting. So what else do we know about this location? Fenway Park, which eventually becomes Diamond City, which is one of the most important locations that you visit in Fallout 4. Well, we know it survived the Great War. We know that those walls from the time of the Great War on were seen as structures that can keep people safe. And in a post-apocalyptic world where everything is dangerous, everything's trying to kill you, finding places of safety is difficult. So from that day on, I wouldn't be surprised if the stadium itself was used as a shelter, which we do in our own world and have over multiple years. We've seen examples of this during hurricanes where people will use stadiums for shelter because the buildings are designed to hold many people and to keep them safely in a very specific place. There's a nice boundary that is built by the outside walls. There are very specific areas of egress, you could say, entrance and exit points. And even those locations can be barred and closed up and watched by security. The outside walls themselves would be difficult to break down, whether through natural means like weather or unnatural means like attack by other humans or creatures of some sort. So it makes sense that early on in the history of Boston, after the bombs drop, that certain locations would show up as places where people would take safety, especially if their own homes had already been destroyed. So we have to use some imagination here. The next update we get about Fenway Park and eventually Diamond City is the official settlement date. And this is... Uh, I mean, the date comes from Fallout Shelter. This is a line in Fallout Shelter. This is not a line in Fallout 4. This is not a line in any of the Fallout games, which it would have to come from Fallout 4 at this point. But we know that it was transformed from Fenway Park officially into Diamond City in 2130. So we have between 2077 and 2130 decades of time where we don't know what was going on here. My guess is that it was already in use as some form of shelter. It was probably not formalized into an actual city until 2130. But I would bet that for those decades, you could find people living in and around this location already. Now, it was a key location. The walls, like I mentioned before, would fortify anybody inside this area from stuff going on outside of it. 
And you can tell that the inhabitants felt that way, too, because they named the left field wall the green monster. It was the big green wall that was protecting them and had protected them during the, the time of the bombs dropping. We as human beings don't tend to nickname things unless we feel strongly about them. Well, one way or the other. But what was actually going on at this location from 2130 for the next 150 some years until 2287? Well, again, we don't know. We don't have specifics for that time period. We learn a lot when we get there in the game. We meet a lot of people who live there and we can piece together some of the details because of that. We can tell that this location has survived that long as an actual city or a settlement of some sort. It's called Diamond City, but it clearly only holds so many people in it. And I'll go over that later in, in the end of the episode. We're going to take stock of how many people actually live in Diamond City. But really, it's more like a small village. I mean, it is situated inside a stadium. And although a stadium could hold tens of thousands, 100,000 people, depending on the stadium, this particular location was no longer being used as a stadium. You have in the center where the field is the building of shanty huts. That's basically what they are. They are metal and wood structures that are leaned up and attached to each other in a way that provides shelter and homes and shops and things for the people. And it's built in a way where you have this marketplace in the middle and then you have an outside ring of shops. And then outside beyond that, you have some homes and some apartments. And in the center of this city, you have the lowest point of the city, the field. As a stadium is designed, the outside areas where the stands are, where the fans watch the game, are higher up than the field itself. And so you have two things happening here. The center of the city, because it's basically a big round shape, is a natural meeting point for so many people. It makes sense that you put the shops there, that you have a gathering place where people can eat and talk and trade. But because it's also the lowest point of the city, and as most cities evolve and grow, the people with wealth tend to want to take the places that have better views, more expansive room to stretch out. The wealthy moved to the upper floors, the upper stands, I guess you could say, of the stadium. And the poor people were given the area in the center, just outside the main trade area. This models the same things that happened in American cities that make them so different from other cities around the world. If you are an American or if you visited the United States, you've probably noticed that most major American cities are designed for cars. And this is a fun thing that happens in the, the development of these American cities over the last hundred years since since the invention of cars. And I say fun as fun in an interesting way, although there are some very terrible things that happen because of this. In American cities, we tend to have our skyscrapers, our centers of trade and industry in the center of the city. And then outside from that center, the areas where a hundred years ago, the wealthy would have lived at the center of the city. Well, because of cars, they all moved to the suburbs. The centers of cities became land that became very low in cost 
or was not updated and improved. So that's why we have so many low residential income areas in and around the center of our cities. The wealthy move out to the hills. They move to the area where they could commute to work, where they could move into the city during the day in order to do their jobs and then drive back to their expansive plots of land and big houses in the evenings and on the weekends. This is the way American cities are designed, but it's very different in places like Europe where that didn't occur. The city's most locations were never adjusted for car travel in the same way American cities were. Of course, you can drive cars through European cities, but the way that design works in, in the United States is, is actually mirrored here in Diamond City. You've got the middle with the the commercial and industrial section of the city, even the growing of crops and those kinds of things. And then as you move out, you get to the wealthier sections. And I find that interesting. And to go back to my previous point of, we have a very significant series of time, period of time where we don't really know what was going on. Well, we can assume certain things. We can assume that certain people staked their claims. Certain people bought up with their bottle caps, probably very specific plots of land within the city in order to own those sections. And so probably fairly quickly within, I would say a couple of years, you ended up with the format of the way the city is designed, the protection at the front gate, the uh, mayor's office being designated that specific spot kind of above where the front of the, the stadium is. The section in the middle with the shops and commerce, all of that design, while not necessarily housing those same exact stores and families or whatever, had probably been there for a hundred and something years by the time we actually get to see it in Fallout 4. All right, I've got to take a break and go thank our patrons, but we'll be back in just a minute with more details about what we do know about the evolution of Diamond City and its inhabitants. So don't go anywhere. All right, so everybody knows how VPN services and ExpressVPN can protect your privacy and security online, right? But did you know that there are some secret hidden benefits to using ExpressVPN, like unlocking movies and shows that are only available in other countries? So if you're like me, you probably enjoy watching shows on Netflix, for example. Well, with ExpressVPN, you can unlock the UK version of The Office or Parasite from South Korean Netflix. Over a hundred different countries. All you have to do is change your location and refresh Netflix or whatever, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. In fact, when I set it up for myself, I was surprised at how easy it was. It just installs and then loads up and works. And it works on more than just PCs, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and so much more. So if you want to access hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash falloutlore, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash falloutlore, expressvpn.com slash falloutlore to learn more. 
The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello there, old chap. Good to see another of General Atomic's finest still eager to serve. All right, here we are in the middle of the show. And thank you so much to everybody who supports this show in every different way that you do. I couldn't do it without you. And I, I absolutely appreciate your support. Huge shout outs to all of our patrons, all 82 of our current signed up patrons. You can join on the Patreon for free now. It's a new thing Patreon's been doing where you can just sign up to, in order to stay like plugged in and see messages and stuff. So feel free to go do that. Patreon.com slash follow Lorecast. You don't have to spend any money. You don't get the rewards unless you decide to contribute something, but you can at least get plugged in that way, which is pretty cool. Um, also, I have to shout out Germinator and Sky R. They are our SentryBot tier patrons. Thank you so much for your support. And again, to everybody, thank you so much. I couldn't do this without you. Also, if you'd like to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, I will read that out on a future episode of the show. I don't have any new ones that have showed up this week, but if you put yours in, then you can get it on the show probably next week. So uh, thank you to everybody who does that for rating the show on Spotify, for sharing it with your friends, for all of the hype for Fallout TV coming in just a few months, all of that stuff. And remember, you can always join us on the Discord. There has been a ton of conversation on the Fallout Lorecast channel on the Robots Radio Discord. So uh, the links in the show notes, all that stuff. You know how this all, this all works. All right, let's move on with the rest of the episode. If you have any questions about Nuka World, I'd be delighted to answer them. Okay, so what else do we know about the history of Diamond City? Well, the information is fairly sparse, but we do have some details about things that have happened, say, in the last hundred-ish years. In 2180, the Minutemen, who were around in 2180, defended the city from an attacking horde of super mutants. Now, this was actually part of the militia's actual rise to prominence in the Commonwealth. This event basically put them on the map. People realized that they were doing these things, that they were a good, uh, basically a good <laughs> for the people of the Commonwealth. And they've been around since. Now, if you've experienced this location in Fallout 4, you know, even right off the bat, when you show up at Diamond City, that there is a problem with synths and there is a problem with people being called out as synths who maybe or maybe aren't. There's a lot of suspicion and this city has been dealing with this for a very long time. In 2229, remember, the current date is 2287. So this is almost 60 years before the current time in Fallout 4. There was a visitor named Mr. Carter who decided to open fire at the Diamond City Bar in the center of town. This killed a number of people. Security eventually takes him down and then he's autopsied. He's examined and it turns out that he's a synth. And we know about this through dialogue, specifically with Rosalind Chambers. 
There's a conversation where she says, what would you do if your family was destroyed by a synth right in front of you when you were but a child? Would you roll over and accept it or would you do something about it? The sole survivor asks, what, what happened to you? Rosalind says, in Diamond City, a lifetime ago, my parents and eight others were massacred by someone. At first, we thought the maniac was human, but that was the day we learned of the Institute's latest creations, the synths. As long as the Institute walks invisibly among us, they strike without warning and control us from the shadows. Can you imagine being a child, seeing your family gunned down and then realizing that there are machines parading around as human beings and they could be anyone. You're probably going, well, yeah, I played Fallout 4, but that is a, a very disconcerting thing to realize as a child, not just as a human being or as an adult, but as a child, do you ever really feel safe in that situation? And this is something that affects more than just Rosalind. The entire city has been dealing with this. And it's very easy to see these things when they're a video game as kind of abstracted. And yeah, okay, those are the problems that these people are dealing with. Yeah, they just need to get over it. But put yourself in her shoes. What if your family was gunned down and it turned out it was basically the Terminator? How would you feel? So this incident itself plants these seeds this concept this fear among the people in the city this paranoia grows over time as we see in the games now there are some other events that happen you may not have realized that the inhabitants or at least the original inhabitants of good neighbor came from diamond city you probably know this but maybe you didn't this was back in 2240 a group of criminals in the city were banished from the city and they founded a new city good neighbor and it makes sense they wanted to do things that weren't necessarily legal in diamond city's limits that's why good neighbor is kind of the way it is when you go visit it i should do an episode on good neighbor we won't do that here right now but that sets the foundation also you can imagine this is 2240 11 years after the incident of the shooting at the bar, people are suspicious. If you are somebody who lives in Diamond City and you are known for some nefarious things, their first and only example at this point that we know of, of a synth, is somebody who's willing to shoot up a group of people in public. Not exactly the most uh, law-abiding kind of <laughs> interaction I guess you could say so they become very suspicious of people who are not as law-abiding and they can't just kill everyone and lock them up so they kick them out which is a fitting or at least dangerous punishment because of how dangerous the world is out beyond those walls I would imagine many people in Diamond City very rarely even leave the city unless they need to. Now, there are a few other events that occur on the timeline. We know that the uh, the restaurant, Power Noodles, which is run by the Protectron Takahashi, was 
founded in 2272. So we're getting a little bit closer to the current time period. We also know that the city not only has focused on synths being a problem, but definitely has gone through an anti-ghoul sentiment as well. This was something that came about during mayoral candidate McDonough's political campaign and an anti-ghoul decree was established in 2282. So just a few years before the actual events of the game. We also know that in 2286, there was a bit of a class war. Now, let me explain. This all focused in and around the events of the All Faiths Chapel being occupied by the children of Adam. They were opposed to the exile of ghouls. And this belief was more common among the lower fields than from the upper stands residents. The lower fields, as I explained before, were the poorer, more, I guess you could say, blue-collar individuals, and the upper stands were the wealthier. And there was a big disagreement about this. The lower fields people also were opposed to the authority of the Minutemen, uh, who happened to be more active in the city at this time. All of this information comes from the Fallout RPG. So, again, not from Fallout 4, but in and around the same topics. And because we don't have a ton of information about all of these details, it's basically what we have to go on. Now, in 2287, McDonough remains in power, and then we end up caught up with the events that happen in Fallout 4, which I'm not going to recount on this episode. But I do want to take you through some of the details about the city and the inhabitants, how many people live there and what's going on with it. Well, first of all, we know that the city is self-sustained. They have their own farming and agriculture and Brahmin for meat and these kinds of things. Now, as with all of these games, everything is designed on kind of a uh, more miniature scale than what would actually be needed in reality, because you've got like, I don't know what, two Brahmin? You have two Brahmin. This is the number of animals here. Check this out. Two Brahmin, 27 house cats and Toro. That's it. And Toro specifically is one of the house cats. The only one that we have the name for. So that's it. You would imagine you would need more than two Brahmin in order to sustain a population. But what is actually the population? Now, this might actually be real. I mean, you've seen the size of the fields and those. There's not enough food coming out of those fields to sustain a large amount of people, let alone two Brahmin to feed burgers and things like that steaks. So how many people actually live here? Well, let's go through the residents that we know by name. These would include Nick Valentine and Piper Wright, who we have as companions and a lot of other people. There is a large enough number of these that it would be very boring for me to just list them out individually. But if you count them up, there are Piper Wright, Nick Valentine, and then 44 other named NPCs who live in the city. That's not everybody because we don't know the names for 18 other residents who just show up as unnamed NPCs. Also, there are 20 Diamond City security officers. We also don't know by name. Now, if you want to include some of the robots as well, there are two iBots and one police protectron also. Now, some of the uh, inhabitants that we do know by name are robots as well. So this includes those robots in, in that tally of 44. So altogether, we end up with the two companions, 44 residents, 
and then not counting the Brahmin and house cats, 20 Diamond City security offers, 18 other unnamed res- residents with two iBots and one Protectron. The total number comes to 87 people or people and robots or and or synths, <laughs> you could say. 87 people live in Diamond City. It is much more like a village. So I guess the question then is, is this a Skyrim situation where you have a place like Whiterun and you're like, oh, there's like 40 people that live there, but it's the biggest city in Skyrim and that kind of thing. Whiterun's not necessarily the biggest city. Uh, but is it one of those situations where we have just kind of this example of a city and the people who live there, but we're supposed to imagine it's a much bigger place, but you know, video games. So we're going to keep it smaller and a little bit easier to get around and at least talk to everyone and program a number of people. Cause if imagine, imagine diamond city was let's say 500 people, which is still not the size of a city. That would be really big. <laughs> that would, that would, ha- you would take a lot of room to put all those people. Plus would they even fit inside Fenway park? Probably not. They would need to expand to the areas outside of that, but the areas outside of that are more dangerous. So maybe in this situation, that number of people makes sense because that's about as many people as you could comfortably fit to live in this location. Now, I'm sure some of you are going to say, well, yeah, but stadiums can hold thousands of people. I'm sure you could fit more people than that. But that's because you're sitting on a bench next to the person next to you, shoulder to shoulder. Then you're taking up all of like two by two square feet when you want to have a home and a business and crops and extra land. Each individual takes a lot more space than just two feet, but maybe that is a small number. Maybe there could be more people here and that would be more realistic. I at least know that with the animals, it makes sense that there would be more than just two Brahmin and a house cat for like one out of four people or three somewhere in there. (laughs) All right. That's our look at Diamond City. Thank you for tuning in again. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll be back next week with some more fun Fallout stuff. And uh, coming up in just two weeks on the 31st is our patron episode, the very last day of the month. We do those on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. And if you'd like to join us, there's still time to sign up on the Patreon. So I hope you decide to to do that. It'd be be fun to chat and get to know you. It's always fun having new patrons and new people to talk with during our patron episodes. All right. That's going to be it for this week. Stay safe out there and hope you find a big green wall somewhere in case there's a, a nuke that goes off. Man, that's really dark. I hope a nuke doesn't go off. How about that? I'll see you next time. To plug into everything else we're doing, check out robotsradio.net. Reach out to me on Twitter at robots underscore radio. Check out the Robots Radio Rocket Club where you can join me and a bunch of our other creators creating your podcast, starting a new podcast, or helping your current podcast grow. There's more information about that on robotsradio.net as well. And you can always talk with us and the entire community, over 2,000 people on the Robots Radio Discord come join us. We'd love to chat with you. See you guys next time.